Welcome to the Palace Perspective, brought to you by Palace Capital Advisors, a wealth management firm specializing in custom estate, financial, and tax solutions that others often miss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Palace Perspective. I'm Mark Bogar, the Chief Investment Officer here at Palace, and I'll be your host today. Uh, it's great to see everyone that joined the call. We're excited today to talk about recessions and what happens around those in the economy and the markets. And we're joined today by Cam Newton, one of our advisors and portfolio managers here at Palace. Uh, we're also joined by Matt Reardon. He's the Assistant Vice President at Clearbridge, which is a division of Franklin Templeton. And he's excited to talk to us today about anatomies of recessions and everything that goes on. Uh, Matt, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And yeah, we're going to hit on a couple high-level things here in this discussion. First, what are some investor pitfalls around difficult times in markets? Uh, second, what has driven historical recessions? And third, how do investors navigate markets in these difficult times? So we thought maybe we'd kick off, Matt, with you giving a little summary of your thoughts, and then we get into some some of our questions and some of the client questions, if that works for you. Great. Sounds good. And thank you again, everyone, for tuning in. And you know, I think really the genesis of this presentation and how we put together this Anatomy of Recession program was really to provide a simple, easy-to-digest way of of understanding what we're seeing in the economy, what are the key things to look for, and then ultimately, how does that factor into how we're positioning portfolios? And that's really what started this program. We've been running it for a number of years now. And I think it really does a good job of, of laying out the most important principles as it relates to a recession, what's driving the economy, how are things changing, and, and ultimately, where are we going, right? Because that's what we want to do. We want to be able to invest for the future, keep that long-term mindset. And that's something that I think you'll see throughout this presentation as we as we kind of walk through and, uh, and go th through these different factors and different dynamics, that long-term mindset will, will always kind of permeate through. So starting with the investor, you know, pitfalls section, you know, maybe I'll turn it over to you guys and, and kind of, you know, let you guide the way as we, as we go through this. Yeah. Right. Thank you, Matt. Um, so let's kick it off with investor pitfalls. Now today we're going to shine a spotlight on recessions and how they impact client portfolios. Here at Palace, we invest for the long run and invest based on clients' plans and their goals. And the way that we model planning is based on our long run capital market assumptions through a full market cycle. And so Matt, our question to you is, you know, what are the investor pitfalls that create a deviation between realized returns and actual market returns? Yeah, so I think, you know, the big thing as I as I mentioned, right, it's these things called panic attacks in the market and we always try to avoid these sort of things, right? They cause a very sharp sort of emotional reaction as a as an individual investor. And so here in this chart you can see that we took a look across asset classes, essentially to determine just how the average investor actually fares. And it really paints a pretty bleak story when you look at returns across different asset classes compared to the average investor. On an annualized basis, the average investor is just barely outpacing inflation with returns of 3.1%. And part of the reason for that uh, is that many investors give in to these panic attacks. They're very common in the equity market. You know, Even just in recent history, we've had a regional bank crisis in March, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, COVID lockdowns, you know, the Chinese economic recovery not panning out as, you know, as people expected. And these sort of events create very strong short-term dislocations in the market that scare the average investor out, but reward those who are patient. And that's really what we're trying to accomplish across our investment strategies, use patience, duration to our advantage, separate the noise from reality, and then ultimately provide compelling returns through a market cycle, which is, you know, at times going to endure some volatility, but over time will outpace, you know, the average investor and outpace inflation and just about every other asset class across the spectrum. 
Yeah, that's interesting. We definitely talk about here uh, Warren Buffett, and he talks about be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. I think it's a similar type of concept that when things feel the worst in the markets and markets are down, that's when you feel like, oh, I may want to get out and, and wait till things get better. But the typical feeling that you get out then, well, then the markets can rebound and it's tough to get back in. So I think it's really instructive that you have this chart and it, and it echoes that kind of concept. We also have clients that come into a, a decent amount of cash from time to time. And we're always asked, well, should I put that money to work right away in the market? Should I wait? What do you guys think? And we're big fans of dollar cost average approach that we think it's very difficult to time markets in the short run. So let's say, let's come up with a plan that fits uh, with a client's, client's financial profile and let's average that money in over a, a period of time so we can get in, whether it's a little high, a little low, it'll average in over a period of time. We're not putting it all at once, but we also want to get it to work because we don't want to miss out too much on, on longer run returns. So what do, you, what do you think of that dollar cost average approach? Yeah, so I would, I would really point to this chart right here. And I think it's really been shown over and over again, that trying to, you know, bottom tick is no one's competitive advantage. That's no one's strong suit and trying to, you know, pick and choose when the market is, is peaking or, or at a trough. And stocks can always go lower when you think you've hit bottom and they can always, you know, start a new bull market when you least expect it. And so looking at this chart, going all the way back to 1936, what we found is that an investor who tried to time the market essentially by selling 10 months before the market peak and then buying back in 10 months after the trough, you're experiencing an overall cumulative return of about one third, less than a third, uh, compared to that investor who had just bought and held. And so, sort of dollar cost averaging through periods of market turmoil, as you laid out, you know, investors are better positioned to weather volatility. You're not running that sort of fool's errand of you know waiting around and and trying to bottom tick the market. Uh, and I would even look at you know 2022 as an example where you had growth stocks getting absolutely crushed. The Russell 1000 growth declined by 20 over 25 percent during that time frame. And interestingly, we've actually run some data as to what those returns look like after you've had such severe declines. And so looking at the Russell 1000 growth, anytime that that index has declined by more than 25 percent, there's been six instances since uh, since 1980. Your three-year returns looking out after that initial decline on average are 80%. Five years out, it was 170%. And then 10 years out, that average cumulative return was over 370%. So typically these very sharp, again, very sharp dislocations in the market, particularly as it relates to, you know, something like the Russell 1000 growth, which has obviously, you know, been a very high topic of mind along with all the different, you know, ETFs and, and different ways to get growth exposure out there. Having that long-term mindset again, not being spooked by you know a twenty-five percent decline or whatever it might be, and dollar-cost averaging in is always going to be you know a competitive advantage for the long term compared to investors who are trying to time the market. It makes a lot of sense. Do you have anything else on this topic? No, I think we can move on to the economic outlook. Right, excellent. So yeah, let's move on to the economic outlook and. We're heading into, we've had the most anticipated recession ever, I think, this cycle, and that still hasn't come. So the economy has been much better than expected. And that's led interest rates to move even higher this year than people expected. And so, especially over the last few months, you've seen interest rates move up, bond markets sell off, stock markets sell off. And so the average investor is trying to figure out, okay, what's going on with rates what does the Federal Reserve have to do with influencing recessions? How do you view that? Is the Does the Fed lead recessions? Is it the economy that leads us into recession? Can you shed a little light on this topic? Yeah. So, I mean, 2022, if you had looked at the, the projections from uh, economists, this was supposed to be the most anticipated 
recession in, in history and it's not even close and it still hasn't happened yet. And it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think as you look at the different interest rate hiking cycles that we've had and all this different talk about a soft landing, we found that soft landings are, are relatively rare. So there's been three out of the 13 primary Fed tightening cycles where we haven't been ultimately brought into a recession immediately following that, that tightening cycle. And really the Fed's goal in raising interest rates is a matter of slowing the growth of the economy restoring a normal level of inflation at 2%. That's the Fed's long-term target. And we're ultimately seeing these impacts, right? Mortgage rates have risen dramatically. Consumers are starting to shift away from discretionary spending, shifting away from you know taking out loans because it's more expensive. Student loan payments are now resuming, which is going to add additional pressure. So there's a number of different ways that interest rates ultimately factor into the economy and, and ultimately how that determines whether or not we go into a recession. And even if you look at you know, companies, individual companies across a variety of sectors. Financing is now more expensive as rates have risen. It's much harder for companies to invest in their business and it's much harder for them to grow. And that's ultimately what it takes for a recession to to come to fruition. Uh, but as for why we haven't seen a recession yet, I think this chart shows just how easy our monetary policy and how accommodative it has been over the last you know, since COVID, but even if you extended this chart beyond since, you know, that 2010 post-financial crisis era, we've been in, a, in an environment that's been accustomed to low inflation, to very easy policy and low interest rates. And that's all significantly shifting now. And so part of the reason it's taking, you know, very long for these different impacts from higher rates filtering through the economy, it's that policy hasn't really been restrictive since the, until the end of 2022. That's when rates officially entered that point of being not necessarily accommodative or or neutral, but actually inflicting a little bit more pain on the economy, pumping the brakes a little bit. And that's really what's filtering through. And, you know, it's again, it's not just this period since COVID. It's a whole decade before that, a very easy policy that we've, you know, had to had to unwind. And I think as we go through, you know, the rest of 2023 and even into to 2024, obviously there's some very strong signals we're seeing out there, but we should start to see a, a continued impact of that more restrictive policy that we haven't really been used to for, for the last 10 years. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, obviously the Fed factors in many different aspects of the economy and they're trying to cool it off, but uh, wage inflation can be slow to cool off. So how much does the Fed factor wage inflation into, you know, their view on interest rates? Sure. And I, you know, the labor sort of picture has been one of the most confounding, I think, that we've that we've ever seen, just given the different dynamics that we've had since COVID. And so if you if you think about what the Fed is looking at in terms of wage inflation, that's one of the key drivers right now. And really, the even the market itself is being heavily driven by inflation and interest rates. And so I think the big the big piece for the labor market is the sort of reluctance for layoffs that we see. And obviously, if you want a you know a full blown recession, which would require you know a drop in consumption, a rise in unemployment, a slowing in manufacturing and production, we still haven't seen that on the labor market side. And I think the large, you know, the probably the number one dynamic that we've seen in in talking with companies individually at ClearBridge is that companies are much more reluctant to lay off workers. In many instances, you've seen companies actually cut hours instead of laying off full workers. And that all sort of, you know, factors in. Labor has gotten, you know, incredibly scarce. That's why you've seen wage inflation come up. You've had a huge inflow of workers who were previously displaced during COVID, now demanding higher salaries, receiving bonuses to come back to work, and it's still factoring through. I think more recently what you've seen is actually the sort of gap between I would say during COVID, 
people had been able to switch jobs and actually get a higher wage. And it was pretty meaningfully higher around, you know, five or 6% higher wages by switching jobs. And now you're seeing that gap actually close. So now there's not as much of an advantage to, to switching jobs, getting a higher wage. And in fact, people are actually being more reluctant to switch jobs and ultimately being more cautious in terms of their labor market tendencies, how confident they are that they can you know, switch jobs and ultimately find a new opening. So as it relates to wage inflation, it is, you know, an improving dynamic. And I think as this, you know, as you can see in this chart, as we kind of move through this tightening cycle, we'd expect that to, you know, slowly flatten out, maybe not go negative if we enter, you know, that sort of soft landing scenario, but going to continue to to normalize from these these post-COVID distortions that we have. Great. Thanks. Matt, do you have a view on, say, core inflation versus headline inflation? So I've seen some economists yeah. talk about, well, you want to focus on the core because that's what matters. But then you, when you strip out everything that goes up, then you're left with things that don't go up. So how, how do you yeah. view kind of headline inflation that includes energy and food and then core mm-hmm. inflation? How do, you, how do you think about that? Yeah. And you know, I think it's, it's interesting because the, the core PCE, uh, core uh, personal consumption expenditures is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, that's kind of you know their, their guidepost, which, which as you mentioned, strips out food and energy. But if you think about how much of an impact energy prices had had in 2022, following the invasion of Ukraine, not just from, from the energy side, but also on the food side with you know a large portion of the world's grain coming from Ukraine and increasing pressure on, on those two sectors. I think as it relates to this chart in particular, I think this is a, a very good job of showing the Fed's mindset and why they're why they've been so inclined to keep rates higher and kind of push back on any on any notion of rate cuts. Uh, if you look at those two blue bars, what we're looking at is how core CPI changed following an initial Fed rate cut. And so if you look at that 1996 or 1966 era, you could see that, you know, going from 12 month a 12 month period with inflation previously at 3.3%, as the Fed cut rates, inflation actually accelerated to 3.8% in that 12 month period following. In that 36-month period, inflation actually accelerated further, up to 6.2%. And so, what was driving that? I would I would shift over to that that next box and look at the unemployment rate. Very tight labor market during that 1966 period. And I, in fact, the unemployment rate is almost exactly actually it is exactly um, you know what we're sitting at currently. And so, at that tight labor market, makes the Fed much more wary to to ultimately cut interest rates without having a very very solid understanding. Uh, and belief that inflation has been fully tamped out uh, and restored to to that two percent level. As it relates to food and energy, again, you know these are very volatile uh, volatile swings, and I think the Fed will probably do an a, you know an added layer of of analysis um, as it relates to you know those those dynamics because the energy energy sector dynamic, you know whether that's pain at the pump, whether that's you know. Uh, fuel costs for for airlines for for trucks it really impacts the broader economy, and this is a much different sort of scenario. This is the Fed, you know, raising interest rates to restore inflation. This isn't a a sort of natural, you know, cooling down after a, a significant period of growth in the economy. This is a much different uh, sort of dynamic that has a lot of different nuances to it. Very good, very good. So it seems like yeah, the Fed's poised to keep rates higher for longer, and we'll see where at least until inflation comes down. Right, that seems to be the view. Yeah. All right. Well, very good. So we talked to the macroeconomic picture. So then what does that mean, though, from asset allocation, markets? What are the risks? What are the opportunities? What should we do given this backdrop? Yeah. So I would I would first, you know, kind of break it down into these different asset classes, right? We have growth, we have value, you have mid caps, small caps, 
Um, we have the broader market, S&P 500. And ultimately, what we're looking at is how the market tends to respond in these one-year periods following the last Fed rate hike. So you can see here, those blue highlighted bars are the asset classes that tend to do well. You can see that following that last rate hike, mid-caps tend to have the best performance in those instances, followed by large-cap growth. And lastly, value and small caps generally underperform in those periods following following a last Fed rate hike. And a lot of this happens to do with the anticipation of eventual rate cuts. So as the Fed you know, makes policy more accommodative, growth stocks become more attractive. They tend to do very well relative to value. As we shift into that period of, of elevated rates, right, which we might be in sort of a holding period for now, if you think to the next three to six months. Um, but as you move forward, right, cost of capital goes down, companies are able to reinvest in their business and, and continue to grow. And ultimately, that will favor value, uh, or excuse me, favor those growth stocks and even companies in, in more of that mid-cap area, which tend to be more economically sensitive, but also more mature, uh, more cash on their balance sheet, and a greater ability to, to ultimately outperform in that kind of environment as you shift from restrictive policy and then eventually get more accommodative. So going off of that, you know, after you know, you're saying that growth stocks are going to outperform, but income generation is extremely important to our clients. You know, we do that through multiple vehicles, but how do dividend paying stocks, you know, factor into a diversified portfolio when, you know, you're looking at growth being the outperformer? Yeah. So I, I would say dividend growth stocks remain one of the most attractive investment opportunities that uh, that you could find right now, not only from, you know, sort of defensive area, right? These These stocks tend to be, you know, more mature. They're generating lots of cash, tend to have very clean balance sheets or further along in their life cycle, but also the impact that a that a source of income and a growing source of income can can have to a portfolio is really you know it's timely in this environment where you know we're we're kind of at this crossroads but also timeless this is a an area of the market that's it performs extremely well in in tightening cycles and so as you can see in this chart you know versus the the broader S&P 500 and uh index dividend growth stocks tend to outperform not only after that initial hike and during the length of the cycle but in those longer time frames after an initial hike. And I think, you know, number one is that dividend payers tend to stay afloat as their current income gives investors something to hold on to in choppy waters. You know, they're constantly returning capital back to shareholders, back to investors. And then number two, I think the biggest thing, arguably this time around, is is inflationary concerns. And and those are still front and center. They're still something that, you know, is is top of mind and not necessarily something that we're we're through the woods yet. We don't know if inflation's been you know, completely tamped out. And so dividend growers can actually fly, can actually thrive in an inflationary environment because, you know, something like unlike a bond, which has a fixed coupon, rising dividends and growing dividends can offset some of those impacts from purchasing power that inflation actually has on a traditional portfolio and on a traditional investor. So I think dividend growth, you know, not only are you getting companies that can provide meaningful upside in, you know, in a in a solid market that is seeing positive breath and is you know improving in terms of in terms of quality whether it's you know in a new bull market or or what have you but also that additional cushion in the event of a downturn uh, dividend growth stocks historically provide significant downside protection um, as a as a result of those attributes right again you know very you know high returns on invested capital clean balance sheets and and much more mature and able to to invest in their business and protect their overall asset base uh, during times of volatility. So I think this is again, you know, one of the most attractive and sort of, you know, one of those areas that you can get paid to not take a lot of risk. And I think that's important in, in this kind of market. Yeah, absolutely. 
totally. We, we're big fans of dividend growing stocks for sure. Uh, I did want to remind the audience that please uh, put in questions. Uh, if you have any questions, please do put them in. Uh, we just got one or two more official questions, then we'll we'll jump into audience questions. So one more I had was uh, with interest rates higher and seemingly at least higher than they were post-COVID and for a lot of the last 10 years, does that change your long-run view on asset allocation or long-run view of returns in the bond market or returns in the stock market? Any big changes there, or do you think it's a little bit more of the same expectations for those asset classes? So it, it's something that we talk about often, and I had mentioned it earlier, right? Going from 2010 to, to 2020, we've had very easy monetary policy, never had to worry about inflation. And you know, this is something that's you know completely flipped as, as we go through um, into the sort of back half of, you know, I guess, still the first half of this decade, but shifting into the back half, there's still a lot of unknowns. I think what the Fed is trying to do and, and what has successfully done so far, right? Return that inflation rate to a sustainable 2% clip and bring that you know wage inflation back into, into normalized levels and, and cool off the economy in general. But generally we found across across the market's history, we've had these you know 20 year secular bull markets followed by around a 10 year uh, secular bear market. And really when you compare this run that we've had since 2010 and compare it to you know the 1980s or the 1950s, it signals to us that we still have a significant amount of room to to run. And I think the, the broader sort of market dynamics, right, as it relates to, you know, a lot of the innovation that's gone gone on in the stock market, whether that's in AI, whether that's in, you know, in cloud computing or or what have you, that innovation isn't going anywhere. And ultimately that's really what propels markets higher. That's what creates, you know, the the big returns that we that we want as investors and creates the growth and broader innovation across uh, across the market. And so if you compare the cumulative return that we've had just from 2010 up to the present, um, around 285% of, of an overall return, compare that to the 1980s, 1,261% during that, during that secular bull market. And so I think that gives us a lot of confidence. It, we invest in, in, in finding that, you know, we find excitement in finding those, those new opportunities and, and those companies that are doing innovative things that draw attention to the capital markets, that draws, you know, efficiencies into the economy. And that's ultimately what we need. And there's, you know, a lot of different dynamics at play and, and a lot of areas of the economy and, and areas of innovation that are, you know, still many, many years down the line. And, and that's really what excites us as investors and, and gives us confidence in uh, that sort of long run view. All right. Well, the future is still bright. Then is what you're saying. We sure hope so. Despite uh, despite what 2022 might have might have told you. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, why don't we move on to uh, audience questions? Uh, do you, do you want to kick it off? Should I kick it off? Yeah, I can kick it off. I think I did see one on the housing market with rates up so high. What do you see demand wise for real estate? Whether that's the construction side or just overall real estate? Are we still at the beginning of that cycle? slowing down? Is there now opportunity? But where where are we in the real estate cycle? Sure. So really, since the great financial crisis, we've been essentially you know short around one or two million homes per year of construction. There was a significant drop off in, in terms of construction activity in that, in that great financial crisis period up until essentially 2020. And as everybody flocked from being locked up into their apartments, shifted over into to looking for homes, you know, there's been a huge rise in, in real estate values, and that's been now accompanied with a huge rise in in mortgage rates. And the interesting thing is that despite seven, eight percent mortgage rates, home buyers are actually still paying the price. The thing is they just can't find enough supply out there. 
And so that's kind of what's what's propping up the market right now in a in a traditional environment with ample supply. You know, there would be significant cooling, but that hasn't been able to happen just because of that structural shortage of supply. But in terms of mortgage rates and, and where they might be headed from here, it seems to us that you know we've kind of approached that that sort of peak. You might get more activity in terms of you know remodeling if people are staying in their homes for for longer periods of time, and people aren't rushing to lock in you know a, a seven eight percent rate and, and instead want to hold out and just kind of stay put on on where they are. So you know should be eventual sort of rolling over. It's it's really the you know the amount of supply that's that hasn't been online for for the last two years for the housing market. Yeah, very good. That's generally how we see it as well. Supply is definitely being constrained. And at least in the uh, housing side, it doesn't seem like it's coming on very fast either. So eventually, will supply demand does adjust in every market, right? But it can be right. uh, slower at times for sure. Yeah, we have one more question. Um, what are your thoughts on AI and investing in that space? Sure. So in our view, it's still very, very early innings for, for us to sort of pick a, a clear winner at this point. And you know we've we've kind of looked at it from from a number of different perspectives. If you look at Nvidia and compared it to you know Cisco back in back in the two thousands, Cisco was trading at a much much higher valuation compared to what Nvidia was is is trading at or, or was trading at at its peak. And eventually, you know, the early winners are are going to cede share to to the sort of ankle biters at the bottom to who's considered the losers now. And it's very early to to tell who that is. We have. You know, a good idea of who the leaders are, right? That's Microsoft, who's essentially going to be like the the toll road operator for for AI um, applications. And then you have Nvidia, which is um, you know essentially the arms dealer that allows you to run AI servers. So, you know, the market tends to flock to the early leaders like that. But over time, you know, we we can find opportunities in in smaller parts of the market that aren't as concentrated, that aren't as getting. Uh, as much attention as as those early leaders are, but there's a number of you know really really powerful ways that AI could you know could help businesses, could make the economy more efficient. But right now, it's it's almost like a commodity, right? If you think of of a chat GPT, basically any you know different app uh, or application can can provide a chat like chat GPT like like tool. But where it's going to start to create value is in you know catering that to a specific specific customer to their specific data to make it more client-friendly and, and more personalized. Thank you. Great, thanks. We've got a couple questions on geopolitics, whether it's China, Russia, Ukraine, terrible things going on in the Middle East uh, most recently. How does the global picture impact your view on where to allocate assets? Sure. So the market has long had a tendency to ignore geopolitical concerns, at least in you know over the long term. There tends to be that initial you know short of shock you know, as these events unfold, which was recently the case with with Russia and Ukraine and what have you. Uh, but the biggest thing I would say it ties back to is the energy market. And you know, if you look at where oil prices had gone, they you know were peaking in in 2022, and then they've come back down as fears around China's recovery started to kind of take hold. And geopolitics, I'd say I'd say the energy sector is by far the the number one area of focus, and that could. You know, even most recently uh, in the Middle East, you could see you know different ripple effects into you know Saudi Arabia, which earlier announced that um, they're actually going to do be doing production cuts along with Russia, and we're really entering a sort of you know supply constrained market for for oil that kind of factors into you know a lot of these different things that are that are happening in in the geopolitical sphere. You know, and it's and it's fascinating to see. I don't think we've ever seen you know such a you know a, a high strung geopolitical environment, a number of different dynamics, different philosophies at play. And so, you know, that's kind of how we're how we thinking about it. Makes sense. Makes sense. 
And then a uh, question around rates. I know that uh, no one can predict rates and people didn't think they'd be as high as they are now, but where do you see the uh, long run U.S. Treasury rate settling out in 2024? Sure. So I think, you know, the big thing is if the economy continues to post resilient results, the labor market continues to to be strong, we could, you know, eventually move up higher. I think the big part of why we've seen the recent move that we had, investors came into, you know, 2023 with, with hope of eventual cuts in 2024, which in our view is probably too optimistic. And now that's, you know, kind of getting pushed out. The Fed continues to reiterate that message of keeping rates higher for longer to stamp out inflation. And we go from consensus expecting, you know, 120 basis points of cuts in 2024 to now maybe, you know, 25 or 50 and not even starting until, you know, the back half of 2024. And so that's really, I think, what's what's getting factored in. If, if we continue to see resilient economic data, we could see a tenure that, you know, pushes up to five before ultimately settling out and, and stabilizing. Right. Excellent. Well, we do have one very important question as well is we're always on the lookout for a good streaming show. So do you have any recommendations yeah. on that front? <laughs> well, so I was a little late to the game, but I actually just finished watching uh, the show Chernobyl, uh, uh, which was, you know, I've by seen... far and away, I, I would say one of the, one of the better shows I've seen recently, but in terms of a new show, you know, I'm, I'm open to suggestions. So. All right. Well, um, we'll let, uh, we'll let Cam. Yeah. <laughs> actually, we, uh, we watched Daisy in the six recently. So uh, we thought that was good. All right. Also, I'll, but... I'll keep it in my back pocket. All right. Very good. Uh, well, great. Well, I think that wraps up the questions we have. And at least for me, the few takeaways that I had were uh, certainly number one, stay the course for your long run financial plan. Markets are going to be volatile, but stay the course. We've got a plan. Protect and grow capital. That's what we do here at Palace Capital. Stay stay coin that long run plan. Second, recessions repeat, but they don't rhyme. So are they sorry, they don't repeat, but they do rhyme. So ver various characteristics happen over and over again. And the Fed is center of that. So the Fed's already raised rates. We seem to be near the end of that cycle. We most likely will have a mild recession, but then that's an opportunity to invest. Brings us on to the third point would be dividend growing stocks we think are a very interesting part of the portfolio. That's what we center our equity around, our earnings growers and dividend growers. And so we think that's a great part of the market to be in. Quality stocks is a great place to be. So why don't we wrap it up there? This discussion is really helpful. Really appreciate it, Matt. Thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having and, me on. Um, we, did, uh, we recorded this session today. And so if you'd like to share this content with colleagues and family, you can access it on the Palace website, Spotify, and Apple Music. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. Great. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Take care. The preceding information is for general educational purposes only. It's not intended to be investment advice and is not specific to any individual's personal situation. Any decision about investing should be undertaken only after careful consideration of the investment's risks, costs, liquidity or lack thereof, and the investor's time frame. Please remember that past performance may not be indicative of future results. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk and there can be no assurance that the future performance of any specific investment, investment strategy, or product referred to directly or indirectly in this newsletter or podcast will be profitable or equal any corresponding indicated historical performance levels. The investment advice is offered through Palace Capital Advisors, LLC, our registered investment advisor.